0: Welcome to A Disciples Point of View, a podcast where we go over a variety of topics related to Christianity. Hello, and welcome to this week's A Disciples Point of View. So, last week we had a little bit of a special, something that was kind of on my heart, given the things that are going on in the world right now, and what we believe and what I believe is the next prophetic event on God's prophetic calendar, which I believe to be the imminent rapture of the church. And so, I kind of wanted to record something like that so that there would be, if it indeed does happen in our lifetime, and if it indeed does happen very soon, as many uh, prophecy-minded Christians do believe is going to happen, I wanted to have something out there in the world that would suffice as some sort of quote-unquote left-behind message. Not that I'm sitting here trying to advocate the movie of movies of Left Behind. I believe they were very campy and kind of parascriptural and whatnot, but regardless, I wanted to have something to leave behind, so to speak. And so we're going to pick up our study in John this week, and we're going to talk about basically Jesus at the uh, Feast of Booths. Now, what the Feast of the Booths are, or what the Feast of Tabernacles is, it's also referred in modern times to succot s-u-k-k-o-t basically means huts or booths and so basically it's kind of a way god let me back up for a second so in the book of leviticus there are a whole bunch of festivals that god mandated the people of israel follow mostly it was so they would remember the things that happened in the past that they would never forget human beings have a tendency if something happens in history they have a tendency to just forget about it after a while right let's say Uh, A modern day example would be like 9-11 here in the United States. After 9-11 happened for like the first 10 years, we were very reverent about that date and all this and that. Now, 20 years later, it's very much like, eh, whatever. You didn't really see many specials about it on television and stuff like that. Not many people talked about it. And a matter of fact, the growing consensus among some in our country is that we deserved it. So things start changing and history doesn't necessarily get remembered as it should be, et cetera, whatnot. Not that this is a commentary on nine 11. It's just a commentary on human nature about history and why humans tend to just simply repeat history so to speak we don't learn the lessons of it and that was what the festivals were designed to do the festivals were designed to have israel always remember the things that took place and what the feast of booze or the tabernacles were all about is it basically it was to commemorate the years of wandering in the wilderness after the exodus of egypt it's characterized by the erection of huts made of branches And by the gathering of four species of plants with prayers of thanksgiving to God for the fruitfulness of the land. As part of the celebration, a sevenfold circuit of the synagogue is made with four with the four plants on the seventh day of the festival called by a special name, Hoshana Rabbah or Great Hosanna. So that's basically the background of our text today in uh, chapter seven, verse one. After this, so this is where, you know, um, if you remember from two weeks ago in John chapter six, uh, you know, he said some pretty, pretty wild stuff that obviously had a lot of spiritual meaning. And in John six, verse 66 says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And Jesus then asked his disciples, do you want to leave too? And then uh, Peter said, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And he said, did I not choose you, the 12, yet one of you is a devil. That's our background for saying after this, Jesus went into Galilee. He would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So basically, you know, he was doing things on the Sabbath. Oftentimes, he would heal people on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees and Sadducees would be like, you're not supposed to do that. This is the Sabbath, whatnot. But basically, he said, my father is working to this day, and I am also working. Basically, he then equated himself equal to God. And so they're like, this man is blaspheming. He's violating the Sabbath. He needs to die. So that's why the scripture here says they were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers, his literal physical brothers, because Mary and Joseph also had other children after they had Jesus, right? Leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples... Also may see the works you are doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So basically, they're like, you know, they're kind of making fun of him here, really. Because in verse 5, it says, For not even his brothers believed in him. They all knew him. They grew up with him and whatnot. Now, all of a sudden, he's saying all sorts of wild, crazy stuff. Now, I have no doubt, and we don't really have any kind of canon scripture to testify as to how he necessarily was as a child. We have the the story of when he stayed behind in the temple of God as his family ended up going back uh, to Nazareth after having come to Jerusalem for one of these festivals, and they went back to get him, and they're like, why did you do this to his son? And Jesus responded by saying, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? That's about all we know from Jesus' childhood. So I guarantee you... Uh, He's 12 years old, and he's saying, didn't you know I should be in my father's house? He's referring to the temple where everybody in Israel worshipped God. So basically, he was already calling God his own father back then, right, making himself equal with God. I guarantee you his brothers were, like, very privy to the very same things that he would say all the time. And I guarantee you he had uncommon wisdom and uncommon maturity for somebody his age or for any human being in general. Even to this day, people will be like, I don't believe Jesus, son of God, but I think he was a great man. He had some great teachings and stuff like that. We can learn from his wisdom. Even now with just the four gospels we have, much less if they were living with him day in and day out until he started his ministry when he was about 30 years old. Picking it back up in verse 6, Jesus said to them, my time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify Uh, about it that its works are evil you go up to the feast I am not going up to the feast to this feast for my time has not yet fully come so what does this mean here what is he saying I'm you know my time has not yet come so obviously the Jews are seeking to kill him right And what happened later on in the Gospels, you have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem one week before his crucifixion, right? He made that triumphal entry where everybody's saying, Hosanna to the king, basically like glory to God in the highest to the king because they were looking for him to fulfill Ezekiel 37 quite literally, in that God said, My servant David shall be a king over them, and that he would unite the two houses of Israel, because Israel had split ten tribes to the north that had been wiped out in 723 B.C., and then you had the Judean kingdom to the south that were two tribes that were still surviving but were under Roman captivity. The times of the Gentiles. It was Daniel chapter 2, literally being fulfilled right before their eyes, right? And so they look to the one who would be the offspring of David. See also 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17 about the coming Messiah, that he would be from the offspring of David and what he would actually do for the nation of Israel. He's saying right here in John chapter 7, my time is not yet come. That's what he's referring to. He's referring to God's perfect timing about when he would die on the cross and that he would end up dying for the sins of the world and accomplishing everything in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel 39 at the end of the chapter, Jeremiah 31, Daniel chapter 9, and what he would ultimately do on the cross in Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus is saying, my time for that has not yet come because the Father has not yet said, go basically in verse 9 after saying this he remained in Galilee here's a complicated issue here okay so in verse 10 but after his brothers had gone up to the feast then he also went up not publicly but in private so wait didn't he just say he wasn't going to go why is he now going is he lying did he did he lie did he did he change his mind i, did, I thought god didn't change his mind i thought jesus is the same today Uh, today, yesterday, and forever, you know, it's like, so why would he, why would he say this? I think the key here is, and I think the takeaway is, he went privately. He did not go publicly, right? We're going to see something here, though, a little bit later on that is going to seemingly contradict even that, but it is not a contradiction, and I will defend that postulation. In verse um, 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying where is he because he was expected to be there this is something all faithful jewish people under the old covenant had to observe so he they're like well if he's a teacher of god he's going to be here so we'll we'll snatch we'll snag him up and and uh, what we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll 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 do away with this this heretic this guy leading people astray and I'll comment on that in this next verse right here and there was much muttering about him among the people. People were a buzz about Jesus and what he was doing. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Oh, we, we, we still hear that this day, don't we? Nearly 2,000 years later, um, you, you will probably have a lot of Orthodox Jewish people saying Jesus was a false Christ. He's not real. He's, he is not the Jewish Messiah. He is leading people astray. We still hear that to this day. In verse 13, Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So, you know, there was some consensus. No, he's a good man. No, he's an evil man. The Pharisees are like, he's leading people astray. He was too controversial. So nobody really wanted to take a position about Jesus during that time because, yeah, he was stoking a lot of controversy. He was, he was rocking the boat, so to speak. In verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Oh, wait a minute. This is okay. So not only say he's not going up to the festival, he's going in private. Now he's getting up and teaching in the temple. One commentary I read that basically that Jesus basically practiced the same thing that other rabbis would do. They would almost kind of play tag team. They'd get up and teach in the temple, and they would kind of tag team off of each other. It would be as if, like me doing this podcast, If, if I was just sitting in a room, maybe delivering this podcast or a talk or whatever, and uh, maybe somebody else got up and kind of built off what I said. And then somebody would get up and build off what somebody else said and whatnot. It was almost like, you know, kind of like small groups gathered all around the temple and they would all be teaching the people and whatnot and basically uh, telling each other about God, right? Uh, in verse 15, then the Jews marveled, saying, How is this man, ha- uh, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? This is because, well, number one is because he is God in the flesh. So, I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. And to kind of illustrate the next verses that are coming up, this harkens back to Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, where one like a son of man approached the ancient of days, and he received a kingdom that is everlasting, right? So this character is a divine character in Micah 5 two, His days are from old, right? Um, in Isaiah chapter 9, he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us right? So this character, this person is going to be divine. So it makes sense why he has such learning, even though he's never studied, he's the one that gave the law in the first place, right? Anyway, pick them back up in verse 16. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. So he was one like a son of man who approached the ancient of days. So basically, in essence, even though I said he was the one that gave it in the first place, he is also the one that has now put himself under total subjection to the Father, much like we have to do. Jesus became like us in every way, yet was without sin. So it's that very same thing. It's that very same idea that basically he's saying, I heard this from the Father. It's not my own teaching. I heard it from the Father kind of thing, right? In verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, uh, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So basically, consider two. Um, I often think about this whenever I contemplate the, the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. If he was just simply a man and somehow had never sinned in his life, I would think that God would look at him not necessarily as somebody who could die for the sins of the world, past, present, and future. He has to be, to some degree, infinite. Because, in essence, the, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross has covered from the sin of Adam all the way to the end of time and everywhere in between. That is a lot. If you believe in the biblical timeline, it's about 6,000 years of human history. And there have been a lot of humans come and go. And so the ones who truly do believe in him and that will come under the new covenant, right? Even the Old Testament saints who looked forward to a coming Messiah, believing in all the prophecies, I believe were covered under Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. They were covered by that same faith because they knew the law could never justify them. They were looking for one to come to save them from their sins, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to atone for iniquity, to seal up vision and prophets. See also Daniel chapter nine, verse 24, right? And so Jesus is sitting here doing exactly and postulating the exact same thing we have to postulate, right? He is living the exact same way we have to live. And he never called for worship for himself. Think about that for a second. In First John 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14, And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And I already quoted some of the Old Testament verses that stipulated that the, the, uh, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, would have to be divine. He never demanded worship for himself. And so I think this is very much in line, what he just said here, with that idea. He emptied himself, according to the book of Philippians, being in the form of God, but not grasping onto it, making himself into the form of a man, into the form of a bondservant for the sake of us, right? In verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? So we've talked about another podcast that Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter. He could see directly into the soul, intent, and heart of man. He knew what they were thinking as they were listening to him. This man speaks blasphemy, as we've seen elsewhere in the Gospels, right? Um, This man is blaspheming. And then Jesus would say, why do you say in your hearts? In other Gospels, what's called the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus would say stuff like that, and the scriptures would say that. It intimates intimates rather divinity. Because how I, I can't look at somebody on the street and go, How can you say in your heart X, Y, and Z? I have no idea what they're thinking, right? I have to go by what they're doing. And Jesus had the ability to go beyond that. That's why he said, Why do you seek to kill me? in verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Because, of course, they've never made open proclamations amongst the people. They've always, you know, just kind of, you know, talked in secret amongst themselves, basically saying, we're going to find this guy and we're going to put him to death. Verse 21, Jesus answered, I did one work and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, Abraham specifically, to be quite honest. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on, and So basically Jesus is referring to one of the many occasions where he healed a man on the Sabbath and that the Pharisees were going to utilize that as a justification to kill him. If a man on the Sabbath receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole body well? He's calling them out for their hypocrisy. Because there are works of the law, or I'm sorry, there are works that have to be done still even on the Sabbath. You consider the watchmen of the city, right? the watchmen on the wall, so to speak. Well, did they just kind of do nothing on the Sabbath? Probably, or probably not, because the enemies of Israel would have known that on Saturdays, or whatever day, you know, in the ancient times, it was considered to be on Saturdays for our intent and purpose here. Well, we could just go invade the city because the watchmen are observing the Sabbath. So we can go up and invade the city and we'll be just fine. In verse 24, Jesus said, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. I want to expound on that verse further. So that's John chapter 7, verse 24. And don't use this, by the way, people, to go around judging other people. However, Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, judge uh, judge not lest ye be judged. And people throw that around all the time. As a matter of fact, I've seen it on Twitter. It's like you can't judge eno- you can't judge another brother. Now I would say we, we shouldn't be walking around going that man's not saved or or this person's not saved. I would say if they're displaying nothing but the fruit of the flesh or the sins of the flesh, according to uh, Galatians chapter five, You might have a good case for that. But Jesus is saying, even here, do not judge by appearances, but with right judgment. He's basically saying, you know, you're wanting to kill me because I healed a man on the Sabbath. And yet we circumcise people on the Sabbath so the law of Moses is not broken. And yet you're mad at me because I made a whole man well. Judge not by appearances. Judge with right judgment. You know, start making your decisions about the moral implications of God rightly and not by just some random um, standard that you choose for yourselves, you know, basically cherry picking here and there. It's like, this is okay, but that's not okay. No, it's either all okay or it's not. I made a whole man. Well, you circumcise just simply so the law of Moses isn't broken. I saved a man's life. I allowed it so that he could walk. I allowed it so that he could see. I allowed it so that he would be rid of this horrible disease. I raised a person from the dead, which he did on many occasions. There are at least a few that I can think of off the top of my head. But yet, you're mad at me for that. And you want to kill me for that. And yet, you just simply circumcise people so the law of Moses isn't broken. Judge with right judgment. Quit judging by appearances. This is not to say that you can walk around and start judging your brother and sister in the Lord. But I think it it dismantles that you know, just that blanket argument that people utilize. Hey, judge lest ye be judge not lest ye be judged. I, I've seen a modern day saying go around that honestly should terrify people. Um, you know, and many celebrities have tried to utilize it for themselves. It says, "Only God can judge me." All right, picking up on that whole idea of judge not lest ye be judged, right? But Jesus is saying here, "Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment." right. But saying only God can judge me in all honesty should scare them. It really should scare them because if they're living like the devil, how do they think they're going to get punished? They're going to get punished like the devil. You can't live according to your flesh and of the world and expect to reap eternal life. God is going to let people into his house who he wishes. He demands, basically he demands the cover at the door, right? Many of you who may not be believers go went to clubs. There was a cover to get in, right? If you didn't pay the cover, you didn't get in. Why well, are you going to stand outside and go, how dare you? You're a hypocrite. You need to let me in this house right or in this place right now. I demand to be let in. right? You then start displaying your own morality or your own set of rules for somebody else's house or somebody else's establishment. You can't do that, right? I say that under the idea of, you know, only God can judge me. It's like, you know, that honestly should scare anybody to death. And I'm not sitting here saying this so you can go around judging your brothers and sisters or even other non-believers. We are to display the fruits of the Spirit. We are to be Christ's ambassadors on this earth. So that means not judging Christians or non-Christians rather by Christian standards. You can't do that because they're not Christians. You you don't call non-christians to the account of being a christian because they're not christians so it's not a surprise they're acting like the world it's not a surprise whatsoever now the thing of it is if they're not displaying the fruits of the spirit it doesn't necessarily mean they're not saved but you might sit there and go they're either backsliding and on their way to falling away or they're going through a season and i need to be gracious that takes a little bit of delicacy but obviously you know if 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 you're living like the devil you can't really expect that you're going to be uh, ushered into the kingdom of god you just can't okay and to know how you can get into the kingdom of god now again i don't want to say that you have to live sin have sinless perfection right but you need to show a consistent pattern of displaying the fruits of spirit in your life and being repentant when you do sin friend, 1 John uh, 2, verse 1, it says, um, I write these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus the righteous. But you can't, again, go around living like the devil thinking you have a Jesus get out of hell free card, right? You have to live according to the precepts of the new covenant. And the precept of the new covenant is you live according to the spirit and allow the spirit to display in your life. And how that happens, I am going to tell you in the next segment coming up. At this point in the podcast, I want to reach out to you. And if you have never done so, if you have never entered into a saving relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that today. All you need to do is believe. Believe that Jesus was who he said he was. He was God in the flesh. Believe in your heart that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. Confess him as Lord. And the Bible says that you will be saved if you do that. If you truly believe in your heart that Jesus is who he said he was and that he did exactly what he said he would do for you, you will be saved. It is simply that easy. A lot of people say prayer, prayer. And that's great to confess and put your mind and your heart and everything through A process, if you will, to be able to embody what's already taken place in your heart. By simply saying, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe in my heart that you were raised from the dead. And now I confess you as Lord. Please take control of my life. And I want to follow you for the rest of my days. Jesus name I pray. Amen. That's all you need to do. In your life will change. Your life will change, not necessarily materially, not necessarily in terms of the world, but your life will change as far as your relationship with God. And you can know for certain that you're saved. The Apostle John wrote that when he was pinning First John. He says, "I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you can hope. Not that you can wonder." but that you can know Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says "For it is by grace you have been saved through faith this is not of yourselves it is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast At gmail.com. If you have anything that you would like to convey to me, such as something you agree with, something you don't, or anything else, or if you did receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your life, I'd love to hear from you today and to assist you on your new eternal journey.